0: Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Roselli from the Cleveland Clinic. I'm the uh, surgical director of the Aorta Center and the chief of adult cardiac surgery, and I'm joined with my colleagues.
0: Uh, My name is Patrick Vargo. I'm one of the uh, heart and aorta surgeons here at Cleveland Clinic and a part of the Aorta Center. And
2: I'm Dan Raymond. I'm a thoracic surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic and head of the Center for Chest Wall Disease.
1: So it's great to be joined with with these guys uh, to discuss the topic of pectus pectus excavatum. Mm -hmm. We uh, together had written a paper recently looking at our experience in complex patients who present with the combined issues of a pectus excavatum, which is a chest wall abnormality that people are born with where the sternum uh, is depressed into the chest and uh, cardiovascular problems, they often go hand in hand. And um, uh, what we found is that by bringing our multidisciplinary teams together, including you know other partners within the Heart, Vascular and Thoracic Institute, that we can provide comprehensive care to these patients. We wrote about it uh, since we've had such a really great experience and a growing experience with it. And we're here to talk about these topics in more detail. Um, Patrick, uh, Dr. Vargo, uh, uh, is, um, a premier aortic surgeon here. You take care of a, a ton of patients with connective tissue disorder and complex aortic problems. Um, why don't you share with us a little bit of, um, you know, what, what you see and, you know, when you're presented with patients who are referred to you with connective tissue disorders.
0: Certainly. So when we have a patient with a connective tissue disorder or somebody with a lot of the signs and symptoms of somebody with a connective tissue disorder, uh, we'll bring them in for evaluation, both a a comprehensive evaluation of their heart, aorta, major blood vessels, um, but also other aspects that go along with the connective tissue disorders, Marfans, Louise Dietz, many of the others. Um, We have a comprehensive center, like you said, and so they'll see um, folks from different areas that that evaluate each of these, as well as genetic counseling, medical genetics, to see um, if we can identify what kind of uh, syndrome they may have. Additionally, as part of their evaluation, oftentimes we'll notice that they have a a chest wall deformity as a part of the syndrome. And um, if I find that they have a a chest wall deformity while I'm evaluating them, I often, you know, I always pull in one of my, my uh, colleagues like Dr. Raymond to take a look at the chest wall and give us his opinion about uh, how it's affecting the patient. Is it is it significant? And if so, how can we address it in concert in concert with their uh, cardiovascular abnormalities?
1: And uh, Dan, Dr. Raymond, Dan, see, we we are all friends. I <laughs> might use your first name here, Dr. Raymond. Um, you have a special interest in the chest wall um, in in so many ways, uh, from you know treating complex cancers to um, some of these uh, congenital musculoskeletal uh, abnormalities. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how this chest wall center kind of came to fruition, how your interest has grown around this topic.
2: Well, I think it's, uh, pectus was one of the reasons that, one of the reasons why I really got interested in the chest wall deformity center at at chest wall center. And we realized, and actually interestingly in concert with the fact that we share clinic space with Dr. Roselli and Dr. Vargo, and we're always looking over each other's shoulders, looking at cases together, and that was the genesis, the nidus of us starting to talk about, Well, we're seeing a patient with pectus, I'm seeing a patient with pectus, and I notice they have an aortic abnormality, that created some synergy that built this up, the idea of, one, not only considering combined surgery, but also the broader issue of dealing with patients with chest wall disease. And and the challenge there is that it's so poorly understood broadly even in medicine and the classic pectus patient comes to us with a severe deformity who's been told time and time again, oh, it's cosmetic, it has nothing to do with physiology, you don't have a problem. And I have so many times seen people who are just completely incapacitated by this problem And a simple surgery can really make a dramatic difference. And it's really exciting that then we can even extrapolate that to consider fixing two problems at once. And so not having to put patients through two procedures, but one, to address both problems at once. And it it was initially something that was approached with a lot of caution and trepidation because you can create more problems. You can combine the surgeries and have bleeding issues. and, And that is, I think, what has limited the cardiothoracic community in general from exploring this, but we just have that unique synergy here where we realized we could do this. And we've finally been able to put together a series of patients in a, in a, in a paper that showing that this can be done safely and it can be done efficiently and we can get very good results.
1: Yeah. It's one of the things, you know, after being here at the Cleveland Clinic for 20, 24 years, I've been asked a lot of times, well, what's special about that place? it really is the sort of culture of collaboration. You know, not only um, are we all sort of in a, in a center where, um, you know, our focus can be on the patient because of the construct of, you know, business aspects and all these other things, but geographically in this Heart Vascular Thoracic Institute, it's just like you said, we operate next to each other. We see patients in clinic next to each other. And just like anything, you put two minds together, you get more than one plus one and uh, that's been that's been really fun. Um, uh, a lot of the patients with connective tissue disorder have musculoskeletal sort of problems they have to deal with so uh, Patrick, we can bring in people from other specialties to help with managing these patients, don't we?
0: Right, yeah, we, all, we do, and we, we consult our colleagues in orthopedics and spine surgery as well, oftentimes for an opinion, and make sure they get fully evaluated for any kind of um, deformity that, that may not be in the chest but, but that is affecting their lives.
1: So, uh, Dr. Raymond, when someone has a, a pectus deformity, um, uh, how, how are they affected by it physiologically? W- what are the symptoms that happen?
2: I, I think many pectus... Um, Patients will share with you the, the challenges it, primarily of limitations in their physiologic capacity and essentially the theories there are two basic theories on wh- why pectus is affecting people uh, functionally. one is that with the sternum depressed it's compressing the heart and preventing the heart from filling appropriately and so there is limitation on the amount of blood that the heart can pump out with a single stroke. And as a result of that, they're reduced, what we call stroke volume, their heart's functional capacity is reduced. And by alleviating that, by p- pushing the sternum forward, allowing the heart to expand more efficiently, we're allowing it to function more efficiently. The second thought is that the, there is a general loss in of total chest volume that limits the l- ability of the lungs to expand. And what the way we see this is when people have pulmonary function tests. They have what's called a restrictive abnormality, meaning their lung volumes are smaller than expected. Now, it's not, and the restriction is that the skeletal structure is small. Again, the pectus repair expands the intrathoracic volume, so that may be an additional means by which it uh, benefits the patient physiologically. So, how does that how does that um, limit patients? They tend to have hit a plateau of exercise capacity that's lower than their peers. And so they can, the, the uh, person will go exercising or doing a treadmill and the person next to them will be able to go 10 minutes, 20 minutes longer. I've had patients who are of the extreme who would exercise until they passed out because that was their pushing themselves to their limits of capacity. Mm-hmm. Where do they feel when they're at their limits? Their heart is racing, they feel palpitations and they simply just can't keep up with their peers. And, and that is kind of the classic sign of pectus. And we can look at that more objectively by getting what's called a cardiopulmonary exercise test, where we can actually quantify the amount of work that a patient can do based on the amount of oxygen their body consumes. And what we find in the pectus patients is that they have abnormally low work capacity, And so by fixing that pectus, we can increase that work capacity so that they can function similarly to their peers.
1: And so do we do um, exercise testing on your pectus patients routinely as part of the work? I do
2: routine exercise testing. And um, that's one of the things we always tell patients when they come in is to bring some exercise clothes so that they can um, go through the process. It does involve getting blood gases. um, the, The one group that we don't necessarily do that in is patients who have underlying cardiac abnormalities that are being considered for cardiac surgery because it's on the exercise test, it can be very difficult to differentiate what is pectus limitation versus what is cardiac limitation. And so there we're, we're, we're basing it more on classic factors such as the Haller index, which is the kind of the basic um, objective measurement that
1: uh, most people use. What about post-operative exercise testing? Have you, have you been able to demonstrate a benefit? We haven't done that
2: formally it's it's something where I, honestly I've been looking for the funding to do it as a um, a operative test. Um, we have in 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 cases where people come back and don't think they've shown benefit, we've done exercise testing to show them that they've increased their functional capacity by fifteen to twenty percent, which is about what you would expect because that essentially oftentimes will normalize their work, functional capacity. Um, it's a a goal of mine in the future to have everyone tested pre and post-op. It's just that I have to find the funding to pay for the test post-op.
1: So this operation improves that sort of, you know, bucket handle billowing mechanism of chest wall respiration.
2: Yeah. And, and it's, it's, what's the downside of any surgery on the chest is you lose some of the, the, what we call the compliance of the chest wall. The chest wall becomes a little stiffer. So this doesn't, it's not free, but, the the surgery itself improves the intrathoracic volume. And then uh, uh, pr- probably more likely, I suspect, it's the cardiac filling abnormalities that we're, we're, no, we're pre- preventing that right ventricle from being compressed. We're allowing the right ventricle to fill to maximal capacity and allowing it to accommodate increasing needs as people exercise.
1: We definitely saw that in that first yeah. case we did together. Yeah. It was yeah. remarkable. The woman couldn't walk to her mailbox. That was the story yeah. she told us. And she's just the sweetest thing. And... Uh, and then afterward, um, you know, after I fixed her tricuspid valve and closed her atrial septal defect and you re- reconstructed her chest wall, she was like, you know, running around with her family who are all these yeah. really active people living on a farm. And that was like one of the coolest stories ever. And she really, you know, we got to give her credit oh, she for helping all these other people. Cause yeah, she was, was, was the one that pushed us to sort of explore this. That
2: was definitely kind of an epiphany moment when we saw her recovery and, um, just how dramatically her life changed. And I've had a few others. Um, One is a a woman who's been on YouTube who um, uh, came to me with a fairly significant defect and um, was basically told all of her life that she was lazy and she just wasn't working hard enough. And the change in her life after the surgery was, was, it was life-changing for her. And it was so gratifying to me. And it's really what... Has motivated me to push on this and really be dedicated to the pectus population, where a lot of people just don't take them seriously, and it's it's something that you, with experience you can you can um, you can help people. You have to identify their physiologic limitations and see if you can make them better, and it's a it's
1: very rewarding. Yeah, it's and not I, it's not just a cosmetic no. benefit, although you no. can't discount that. People are pretty excited about having no. sort of a, a normal right. looking chest wall for sure. Afterward, I remember. Right. One guy was joking around how his brothers used to um, put cereal in, yeah, in the cereal bowl. That's a, a common thing. Funny story. Yeah. So, um, but um, th- this operation is really interesting. How um, the way that we conduct this is um, kind of your team starts, yep. clears out the cartilages, gives us exposure alongside the sternum, and then um, and then we work often the left side of the chest. Patrick, tell us a little bit about what what these. Uh, the orientation of organs in the chest about our patients, what what it's like.
0: Right, right. So oftentimes in these in these, so ordinarily the heart sits right behind the sternum and it's also towards the left of the heart. With a severe pectus or a severe you know deformation in the chest wall, it's often pushed to one side, and many times that is towards the left side of the chest. Um, so when we go when we do these surgeries together. Um, we said we first expose uh, to the side of the sternum and uh, remove the cartilage that's deformed. And um, we'll actually shift the whole sternum sideways and have really uh, excellent access to the heart structures. Um, and within the series of patients that we've done these together and we fixed... Um, The majority of them had aortic operations, aortic repairs in the root, ascending, and even the arch. And the next most common operation was the mitral valve, which even in a normal patient can can be ordinarily difficult to to view sometimes. And and there was excellent exposure with this approach. So going next to the sternum and moving the sternum over provided an excellent uh, view of the cardiac and aortic structures below the chest wall that we needed to see to fix.
2: No, and what I would add to that is we've done the... The breadth of operations that we have a relatively small series, but we've still been able to do everything from a tricuspid valve repair, an ASD repair, a triple valve, a total arch, a Ross procedure, um, David procedures. So this exposure is not limiting, but you have to have courageous cardiac surgeons who are willing to do things a little differently the first time just to get, and we had to tweak the technique. And there are ways of adapting the technique to provide different exposure at different levels. One of the things that's kind of unusual afterwards is the classic cardiac surgery patient has sternal wires. Um, after this combined surgery, the patient doesn't have any sternal wires. So it's often people look at the chest X-ray and say, ah, you didn't have cardiac surgery. So it, it does, it, it makes things a little different for the patients, and I always warn them now. I'm like, people aren't going to believe you had cardiac surgery just because they don't see that telltale sternal wire on your chest x-ray.
1: Yeah, there is a midline scar, though. Yeah, there is. Right? There the sure skin, is. The skin incision is still in the middle. Um, and, the you know, one of the things, the it's not just sort of all, all of us coming together talking about these things, but it's also what's made this uh, available to us, I think, is the, the imaging technology, right? Mm-hmm. So we can we can take a CAT scan and do a, a base, basically a virtual view of what the various sort of um, uh, approaches might provide us. And uh, we can sit down with the 3D workstation and really get a sense of exactly how that incision needs to be, what portion of the chest wall needs to be addressed, what the structures are gonna, and how the structures are gonna be exposed underneath. Uh, That's been a, a really nice sort of
2: tool for us to use. Well, and I think that's and that's been reflected in the fact that we don't have one single approach to this, that we've actually, there's a T incision where there is an upper sternotomy mm-hmm. or there is a completely left peristernal approach. And that is a that is a team decision that's made preoperatively based on what is going to be the best exposure.
1: Yeah. And, and there is some variability in sort Absolutely. of everybody's, well, just like there's variability in everybody and everything. I've uh, been particularly... Uh, uh, paying a lot more attention when I see patients with mm-hmm. pectus. because a lot of patients have a mild pectus yes. that we leave alone. Yep. Right? Yeah. Right. We'll leave it alone and do our cardiac operation. Um, but, uh, but I look a lot closer at it now and see that there is quite a bit of variability sort of where that sort of, I guess it's like a hinge point where yep. you see the depression. And Absolutely. Um, um, it's interesting that patients with a, um, with a connective tissue disorders like Marfan they often have a long, chest wall, Mm -hmm. and they had sort of variable insertions of their ribs. Right, Dan, does that change the way you sort of think about how how you're going to... No,
2: I I think uh, one of our initial concerns with the connective tissue disorder patients was um, we do the the typical, the left parasternal approach is the Ravitch procedure, which most people will recognize the names. And um, one of the concerns was, would they have any problems with uh, the cartilage regrowing after we've done the left parasternal approach and divided the soft tissue and then sewn it back together. And that was one of the reasons why we we truly waited on doing this paper until we had good reasonable long-term follow-up with reasonable imaging because all of the of the Marfan's patients get serial CT scans after surgery so we can look at their cartilage regrowth and we noted that they all regrew that there wasn't any there weren't patients that had defects in their chest wall and a billowing or a flail chest. Um, so I, I, think in the connective tissue disorder population, I, that was my biggest concern that has been shown to be not a concern. Um, definitely the sternum can be, although the chest is longer, the sternum can be more blunted Yeah. and then the cartilage comes in, in a more crowded, fused, uh, um, abnormal fashion, which makes it getting, harvesting the cartilage and preserving the lining, the perichondrium a little more challenging, but it has been I, one of the things that I'm, I'm very pleased with this study that we've been able to do is look at the, the regrowth of the chest wall afterwards and show that this
1: procedure didn't impact that. Yeah. Yeah. I was a little worried about that last element you were talking about that yeah. it might affect diaphragm function yeah. or something, yeah. but that really hasn't been an issue no. two of the, two of the big concerns that people have about this idea of combining the things are, um, number one, whether there's an issue with the potential for more bleeding and number two, uh, pain management can, uh, can Dr. Varga, can you speak to, speak to the bleeding issue?
0: Yeah, I, you know, we looked through at all the blood transfusions and blood products that patients received, and, and there were there were, patients did receive transfusions, but when when looking at the what they received, it wasn't out of the, the realm of what we see with complex uh, cardiac and aortic surgery. Um, we didn't have a direct comparison group to compare them, but but looking at it, that we take care of patients, uh, we do these operations in with and without a pectus, and the level of transfusion seemed reasonable.
1: Yeah, I thought that was true too, even with circulatory arrest.
0: Right, and and another important thing was is that we didn't see any postoperative bleeding. Um, a concern would be that uh, you know with an extent, more extensive chest surgery that they would be at risk for bleeding after surgery, um, and that didn't seem to be the case. Um, patients did well after surgery. No one had to be. Um, no, there were no take. There were no re explorations for any kind of bleeding events, and, and uh, it was it was a reasonable post operative course.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's certainly relevant because, uh, you know, when you have to take someone back in an emergency situation or yeah. consider, you know, doing CPR or something like that afterward, that can that can um, sort of give the team a little pause. I, I don't know if it's just us being more meticulous or maybe our exposure is just really good through <laughs> that that broad uh, broad exposure. Um, Dan, can you comment about the pain? Yeah, issue? pain control is a
2: huge component of it's one of the biggest things when I talk to patients about recovery from a pectus surgery. What's unique about the combined approach is with a a pectus alone repair, we like to use an epidural for temporary pain management. We can't place an epidural the day of surgery um, because of the anticoagulation required for the cardiopulmonary bypass. What we can do is, one, do regional blocks, and two, we can um, have an epidural placed once the coagulation parameters are normalized after surgery. So it's something where many of the patients get a epidural the morning of post-op day one. So the pain management, again, which was one of our, the bleeding and the pain management were our two major concerns. We've been able to work out solutions to all of those problems um, in, a, in a, very satisfactory manner. And again, I think that works on our, our, our team approach. Um, the, the, um, what I would say about the bleeding is certainly that was, again, one of our areas of trepidation in, in going into this. And I think that's a, one of the obstacles that a lot of people think about. Um, and that just took caution, time, and um, op- and then it's observation afterwards. And we're finding that we're not having excessive bleeding issues after the surgery.
1: Yeah, I've been impressed uh, with the pain management. And and um, and I guess in general, we've been working on... A- Uh, enhanced recovery after surgery sort of um, pathways to help optimize our pain management and it looks a little different for cardiac than thoracic, but we've used sort of all of those tools from from both of our experiences, and I've been really impressed. You know, uh, gosh, we had one patient who was out of here in like four or five days. She was she was laughing at the like we were all worried about we warned her about pain, and she was laughing at us afterwards. She's like, "This is nothing, you guys." I don't know, maybe maybe she was comparing it to childbirth or something. The last the last one we did, I actually when I went to see
2: the patient on day three or four, his biggest complaint was the epidural hurt, where it was, which I've never heard anyone say that the epidural bothered them. Where it, in and for him to say that a little IV in the back hurt was very telling to me that the pain control was excellent because he had no complaints about he could cough vigorously and to me that I was very excited because to me that's the patient who's going to do great right and and we can minimize their narcotic consumption we can get them through the recovery faster
1: yeah well this has been a really great discussion about uh, you know one of the sort of specialized things that, that we do here uh, really well, and so I've enjoyed talking with you guys. Can you um, maybe give us some closing uh, comments to our uh, patients who are facing these, these problems and the caregivers taking care of them? Can you each, each uh, give us some closing comment, Patrick
0: and, and Dave? I think what's important is that many of the patients that come with these chest wall deformities have multiple issues going on that are part of a a bigger syndrome of connective tissue disorders. And having a center here with many different specialists in different areas of the body from chest wall, aortic, ophthalmology specialists, spine specialists, we really can provide a a comprehensive approach to that. And I think uh, our, our experience with fixing these defects, the pectus defect in combination with cardiac surgery has been shown to be very effective and, and safe to do, and I think it's a, a valuable tool to offer patients to, to make them feel better and, uh, and have more, uh, more energy and exercise capacity to, to enjoy their lives.
2: And I, don't, I would, a message to the broader pectus population, we hear you, we believe you, and we want to help you. I would strongly encourage people who have questions, who want evaluation, you should be seen at an experienced multidisciplinary center that can, has a significant number of evaluations under their belt and can manage these complex issues. It is not just a cosmetic problem, and there are solutions for you. Um, and we really encourage you to pursue that. Get opinions, one opinion, two opinion, five opinions. but you, you And find a physician who listens to you. And that's one of the things I think we do very well here as a team. And we can provide excellent multidisciplinary care.
1: Fantastic. Thanks a lot, guys, as always. Enjoy working with you.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen at clevelandclinic.org slash cardiac consult podcast.